0: This episode is dedicated to Travis West, Phil Leo, Chelsea Frankel, and Michael D. Golar for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at code ficom slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you.
1: This is Sam.
0: This is Avery.
1: And this is Fight Fight. Study.
2: Today on Southpaw, we have Avery Clements. Avery is most famous for covering the sport of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I want to say she may be the most recognizable name in BJJ writing, but she also covers mixed martial arts. We're going to dig into her career in BJJ media and also preview UFC 263. Thank you for being on the show, Avery.
3: Oh, awesome. Sam, thank you so much for having me. It's a huge honor.
2: So how did you get into martial arts and eventually into writing about Brazilian jiu-jitsu and MMA?
3: I actually first started when I was living in Costa Rica. Um, So that was about nine years ago. And I was in a taxi and the taxi driver tried to get um, a bit handsy with me and uh, I think I always thought it was the next day. I think the next day I stepped into a MMA gym, and I uh, I expressed interest. And I think it was a couple of weeks afterward that um I decided that I wanted to really get the ball rolling and sign up. Um, so I started in kickboxing, and I did that for a few months, and then um I gave jujitsu a try a few months after that, and I I don't know if there was ever a moment that I like. I felt like I got bitten by the jujitsu bug, you know, where I was like, oh, I'm obsessed with this. I just kind of started going and enjoyed it enough that I never really stopped. <laughs> and eventually that obsession just kind of grew. And now I pretty much only do jujitsu. But um, I've thrown striking back into the mix a bit as well.
2: What were you doing in Costa Rica?
3: Um, I was initially, uh, oh, what was it? I was teaching English. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I, uh, I got TEFL certified. Um, So teaching English as a foreign language, and I started doing that. So I did that for about a year, and then I started my writing career, and that (laughs) made more money than teaching. And so I was able to stay there, and I eventually um, started dating someone down there. And um, so yeah, it was pretty much just training and writing for a few years.
2: It's interesting how a lot of people, when they first start martial arts nowadays, they start at an MMA gym. And whatever they start taking first, maybe it's not even an MMA class like you. They start in kickboxing. And for others, I've seen people where they start in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But the first thing they start out with is not the thing they stick with. I know a lot of people who started in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I would say most of the people who are obsessed with Muay Thai, I know, started actually in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then they fell in love with Muay Thai. For you, you started in kickboxing first and then got drawn into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So oftentimes it's like the first art you try isn't going to be the one that draws you in. And I think that's something for people to remember that it's not permanent. (laughs) You don't have to think of it like a marriage where you're like, okay, I have to, from day one, do all the research and figure out the martial arts I'm going to love. No, you just try it and then you try different arts and then you see the one that speaks to you.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, And I I think my uh, journey with that was... I guess interesting for me because I actually wanted to start doing Krav Maga because, you know, I knew nothing. I just wanted to do self-defense. You know, I wanted to, you know, not get assaulted and um, that didn't match up with my work schedule. And so I started kickboxing and, uh, yeah, so starting jujitsu after that and kind of, I, I guess, entering the sphere for the purpose of self-defense and kind of finding kickboxing instead and then finding another martial art that, you know, I didn't even know existed. I was one of those people that was like, Oh, jujitsu, basically karate, (laughs) you know, and, um, to find out that it wasn't that, but it was actually very practical for someone my size and learning how, you know, I, I remember the first time I submitted somebody who is well over twice my weight and seeing how that, in itself could be practical and how I kind of stumbled into a more, I guess, practical self-defense ish martial art. Um, I thought that was really cool as well. I think it was a good, uh, moment for me to really see how many different types of martial arts were there. Um, cause I, I really just thought it was all, you know, Taekwondo or, you know, karate, all the more striking based arts. So I, I, I think it's, it was really neat for me to see that as well.
2: And that's another point I bring up often when I talk to people who've never trained anything and they're trying to find a martial art is about what's practical. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean practical self-defense. I don't mean it the way a lot of like <laughs> macho dude bros in martial arts are talking about like the best way to kill somebody. Yeah, I mean, practical as in like the regular common term what's practical to your life. So meaning when somebody's talking about, what martial arts should I take, Sam? I tell them, what's your work schedule? Yeah, And then look around you. What's the schedule of classes? So a lot of times the martial arts you start training with might be what you can afford, first of all. Mm -hmm. And secondly, what works around your schedule. And then preference is after that. It's the same way as work. A lot of people, the job they do is the one that they can do. Yeah, exactly. You know, living in uh, not in a meritocracy, but you know, <laughs> you got to do whatever you got to do. Then you look at the choices you have within that, right? For a lot of people, CEO is out of the question, right? Yeah. So it's like <laughs> out of the jobs I can get, what amount of leeway do I get here? And I think martial arts is the same way. You're already restricted, yeah, by your schedule, your life your finances. And then from there, you have to kind of choose from within that. So for you, it kind of happened around happenstance and also your schedule dictated what you ended up in.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, And it it just so happened that it, you know, I don't think I was suited for kickboxing, Um, not from like a, you know, fun hobbyist perspective, but, you know, really getting into it. Like it just, my brain didn't really wrap itself around it as much as it did with jujitsu. And so I think there's something to be said there as well for, you know, find what works for your learning style and what works for not only your likes and dislikes, but, you know, what you feel most comfortable in, I guess. Um, You know, I don't think you should try one martial art and say, oh, this isn't for me. You know, I tried jujitsu and I just, I didn't enjoy it as much. I couldn't learn it as easily, but I tried, you know, tang sudo and that was much better for me. Um. So yeah, I think people should just give it a try. You know, if something isn't isn't for you on the first go, try something else.
2: And with gyms that offer a variety of martial arts or an MMA gym, usually on the schedule, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is offered the most. Like yeah. a kickboxing class might be offered three times a week or maybe once a day, whereas Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu you might see three times in a day. So that means that not necessarily that it fits your schedule better, but more like even when you take other classes, the class before or right after might be Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So you see it and then it looks so bizarre to anything you're used to. You're like, well, what is that? And it grabs your curiosity. So kickboxing or a lot of martial arts that are taught in an MMA gym is time-wise, always adjacent to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Not that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu can then like pull you into their art, but more like it makes you aware that it exists.
3: Exactly. Yes.
2: So how did you get into writing about brazilian
3: jiu-jitsu and mma. Yeah, so I started off in um <laughs> when the whole uh, viral craze kind of started to hit with you know, you won't believe what happened next. And so that was actually how I got my start in writing online, um which is always funny to me.
2: So not brazilian jiu-jitsu per se, but just writing online.
3: Yeah, exactly. And um so then uh I got started in jiu-jitsu. I met um another jiu-jitsu writer, Emil Fisher at a tournament when I was visiting Pennsylvania. So I was competing and um, we got to chatting, and he uh, asked what I did for a living. And I told him, and he's like, Oh, I write for um, this website called the Jiu Jitsu Times. Um, I can, you know, introduce you online to Kit Canari who runs it. I said, Oh, that would be great. And so I started out just kind of writing articles here and there. Um, and then over time, the previous managing editor left to pursue other things. He had the family, and um, I was still just working from home and writing online. And yeah, Kit asked me if I wanted to do this a bit more. And I said, yes. And so that um, really kicked things off. And so I've since written for a few other websites and um, I've stuck with Jiu-Jitsu times pretty much the entire time. Kit's always been great to me. And so, um, but yeah, it's it's been a really fun ride since then.
2: When you get into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu writing, is there any type of like, Coaching or mentoring from the editor side, or is basically whatever you bring as a writer is what you got. And so then we might see a wide range of writing abilities from pretty good to pretty awful.
3: You know, that's a really good point that I've never really thought of before. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. There's, uh, I don't feel like I got a whole lot of coaching and that wasn't anything bad with, um, you know, any of the other writers or editors. Um, there's just not a lot of jujitsu journalism out there. Um, and it's obviously not a very lucrative career. You kind of have to be either really hustling and making more money on the side, or, you know, you might get really lucky and, uh, find somewhere that pays really well. But for the most part, you know, it's kind of you figuring things out on your own, um, from my experience. And I try to help the other writers that come on board as much as I can. But, um, you know, I'm not professionally trained as a writer or a journalist. So I'm also perpetually winging it. But yeah, you do really get um, a wide range of, you know, some people are really good at jujitsu, but not great. At writing, or some people are amazing writers, but you know, they're white belts. Um, and that's not a bad thing. You know, they'll continue to grow in their jujitsu journey, but they may not be at that point yet where they can write an article that articulates what they would want to say, or that would, you know, deliver the point across to someone who's a bit more advanced in jujitsu. So I think that's the most frequent problem I see is kind of an imbalance between writing style and jujitsu knowledge. Um, so yeah it's it's an interesting mix of people you get in the industry
2: did you do any sports writing prior to that or this was your first entry into anything related to sports
3: no this was um my first type of sports writing ever um it was kind of funny because my first writing job i actually got um it was i think ronda rousey's first ufc fight was coming up and i did um an article about that and like how exciting it was that, you know, Oh, we finally have a woman competing in the UFC. Um, and I was like, I was a white belt at that time. Um, but yeah, so that's how I got my first, like that viral writing job that had nothing to do with sports, but that was really it. Like I I had never really had an interest in sports before. Um, except for in high school, I really wanted to be like the sports writer for our high school newspaper. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that was really it.
2: Did you end up reading, let's say, certain sports writers, maybe not necessarily even in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but for ESPN or other outlets that you started, maybe not even a specific person, but just reading articles to kind of get a sense of like, this is how it's done in other bigger sports?
3: Yeah, I don't think I had any specific journalists that I was really following looking back, but I definitely read a lot of the MMA blogs and I still do like, you know, um, ESPN, you know, Bloody Elbow, MMA Junkie, um, all those, uh, blogs and websites. Um, and that really helped, especially for event coverage, Mm -hmm. uh, just getting kind of the flow for, okay, like, here's how you give like a play by play, um, write up, or here's how you cover these things. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I had a specific journalist that I was following, but I definitely wanted to learn more about how the sport was covered because, you know, you're watching it and you see what's going on, but putting that on paper or, you know, on a screen, whatever is is an entirely different (laughs) skill.
2: Yeah. Even if you're a good writer, quote unquote, in a general sense, right? Like let's say you're even an English major or you did a lot of writing as far as essays or did well in school for that, or even got a postgraduate degree in it. It's not necessarily the same skills you would need for mixed martial arts or any combat sports, because a lot of covering combat sports, and I'm including Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you have to put into words physical things you're seeing. So there's a part of the writing that's describing movements and techniques, right? You're giving like a verbal or written play-by-play. Even if your article isn't, you know, a play-by-play thing, you have to add some of those elements. And I don't think any writing class Really prepares you for that. You have to just learn from reading other people who are doing it, and you're like, oh, that's how you do it, and that's how you kind of mix it into the paragraph.
3: Yeah, um, one of the biggest challenges that I have, and that I still have, you know, like I'm obviously always learning. Um, but there's so much repetition in MMA and jujitsu. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, like how many different ways are there to say he punched the other guy? Uh You know, um, (laughs) and when that happens over and over and over again, um. And especially in those matches where, you know, nothing else is going on or like, oh, they just, you know, fuck for grips the entire time. You know, how do you make that not even just exciting, like making it exciting is like um, a whole extra step, but like creating enough content to have an article that wasn't just they fought for grips for five minutes, the other guy pulled guard and time ran out, you know? Um, so that has definitely, I think, been a challenge that I don't really anticipate and that you may not find in other sports as much.
2: We all go through a honeymoon phase in BJJ where we think it's a uh, utopia. I call this the cult period. Some stay in the cult and for others, the scales start to fall from their eyes. So when did the scale start to fall for you?
3: That is such a good question. And I think about it all the time, actually. And I have a hard time picking a specific moment but i think it happened somewhere between blue and purple belt um and again i don't think it was like a specific like oh man the sport isn't what i thought it was you know i thought it was this beautiful amazing place where you know everybody's equal on the mats um and i think that culty phase for me was like at its peak around probably like early to mid blue belt um but i think it was when i started getting closer to my purple belt um and actually, when I started getting more known in the jujitsu writing sphere, that I, I think I kind of started to see, uh, I guess, the worst of some of the behaviors in martial arts. Um, at least, and I, I shouldn't even say the worst because, um, like, I obviously have not seen the wor- or experienced the worst of it. But I think that's when I started to see, like, oh, there's you know, there are a lot of creepy people in this sport. There's a lot of sexism, like all the things that would directly affect, um, I guess a woman in the sport, specifically me, a white woman in the sport. Um, and I think in, when I was a bit into my purple belt, that's when I started to see some of the even uglier things, you know, like the, the racism, the homophobia, transphobia, like all the phobias and isms, um, that are unfortunately really prevalent in the art. Um, and I, I don't even think that came from the specific behaviors of certain people, but from the complicity um, of the people surrounding them. You know, I would say, you know, hey, I don't think it's a good idea to have this person for a seminar like, you know, they've said this thing or done this thing. And the person would reply like, oh, but they're really nice. And
0: they're like,
3: <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, they, they are really nice. But like, they also did this. Yeah. Like, yeah. But like, they were so cool. Like, we had dinner and they were really chill. Like. Yeah, they're they're super chill. They're super friendly. They're super nice. They also did this thing, and they just like didn't care. <laughs> um, And I think seeing the prevalence of that, and seeing that you know, as I started to put articles out about that and how the response was to that, and just reading through comments and just being like, how are there this many people in the sport that are so comfortable being vocal about supporting these people? It, it just blew my mind a bit, and so I think that's when you know, like you said, those scales <laughs> started to fall off my eyes.
2: So it sounds like a combination of factors where really at Purple Belt, you've been in, I'm not even talking technical, I'm talking about just, again, going back to what's practical, you've trained the art long enough. So you've had enough time in the art where you've met enough people. Mm-hmm. Like by Blue Belt, you know, like 10 people, mm-hmm. and they all are other Blue Belts, and they all love it just as much as you. And then there's White Belt's, that reminds you of how you were when you came and they're just as fascinated. So you could live in this kind of bubble. By Purple Belt, you've not only trained long enough where you've met a lot of people that have come through your gym, but you've probably been to seminars, been to other schools, met people. Now your circle has grown to like hundreds of people. And so by that time, then knowing that many people, you start to hear stories. You know, if you don't know that many people, like you're a White Belt, a White Belt's not gonna hear any stories because they don't know anybody.
3: Yeah. Exactly.
2: By purple belt, you know a lot of people. And so now your network is big enough where these stories start to seep in and then your eyes start to widen and you're like, oh, if that's what happened and I heard about it three times, you start noticing a pattern. Then you know what it looks like. Then you start looking at your own gym or people you've known. And now that you know how to recognize the pattern, You're starting to see, it's not that I was isolated from it. I didn't know how to recognize the pattern, but I'm seeing it here also because now I know what it looks like. I know what I'm looking for, right? So I think a lot of that happens at Purple Belt because that's enough years in the sport where your network should be big enough. And I think that's when you start making a choice where you're like, I want to see it or I don't want to see it. And that's where people start to get comfortable or complicit. They're already so trained to give you some justification or rationalization because they've been doing it for themselves for so long, where it's like, oh, they're so nice, right? And I think the other factor, it sounds like for you, is also your writing. Your writing and in trying to cover your sport in earnest. As a writer, you feel obligated to cover everything, the good and the bad. And you're also public-facing, so people respond to you, right? So then. Both of those things, I think, being in the sport for long enough and writing about the sport force you to become aware of all of its problems as well. And for you to stop thinking of it, just like all of us did, (laughs) that are more uh, social progressives, that it isn't a utopia.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, And I I think I I hear more, um, I guess, horror stories than a lot of people do because people reach out to me. Mm.
0: Um,
3: and so, you know, if I cover something, you know, like, you know, a story about some predator, alleged predator in the sport, someone will message me and say, oh, my gosh, you know, this happened to me, too, at this gym. My coach did nothing about it. And I get messages like that probably at least once a week, you know. And so it it's an eye-opener. Um, and, and usually there's, unfortunately, not much I can do.
2: Probably the worst stories you've heard, you can't even write about it because for one, you don't have enough details. But secondly, because you want to protect the person giving you this information. So you want to keep them anonymous and you know the flack you get. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody comes forward in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you also want to protect them. So it sounds like then from all the stuff you hear, the stuff you're writing about is just like the tip of the iceberg. The even worse stuff, you probably can't even say.
3: Yeah, it barely scratches the surface. Like, people will see what I write about and they say, Oh my gosh, this stuff is everywhere. I'm like, You actually have no idea. (laughs) Um, you know, it's like you said, sometimes it's a matter of keeping the other person anonymous, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, there's too much he said, she said, and you know, I would be putting myself at risk for a lawsuit, or you know, I'd be putting them at risk for a lawsuit, or you know, because we are in a combat sport where there's a lot of you know, unchecked egos and, you know, violence, you know, you worry that there will be physical retaliation against this person. You know, they say, Oh, you know, like my, my partner, I'm still living with my partner and he's beating me, but the jujitsu instructor won't kick him out of the gym, but I still live with him. Like, do you, you know, I'm not going to report on something like that where that partner can go, you know, is living in the same house and can turn around and kill that person. Um, So it's, a little bit, I don't want to say traumatizing, but it is, it shakes you up a bit to know just how much of this there is in the sport where, it, you know, and the sport is promoted for self defense and confidence and all these positive things. And it has so much potential to give people that. But knowing how much of this other stuff is mixed in, it's like, man, you know, like, can I recommend this to people knowing <laughs> all the bullshit that happens?
2: Have you ever read the book or seen the movie? Girl with the Dragon Tattoo?
3: Oh, I read the book. I haven't seen the movie.
2: Well, same thing, Yeah, right? It's this like world where everybody thinks it's perfect, and it's so much worse than people think. And probably for you, you see so much of the worst side of it that most people, fortunately, won't ever have to face, right? Mm -hmm. But it's still part of it. It's still there. And so I kind of compare that scales falling off moment to the feeling the characters got in uh, that book girl with the dragon tattoo where they're just like I thought everything was fine no it's really bad you know and I'm not saying it's one for one the same or it's nearly that bad but there's incidents that people are aware of that probably is that bad but is it indicative of the whole maybe not to that extent but I would even say within not just the culture but in the pedagogy there's a lot of problems as well baked in
3: yeah i 100% agree um and that's such a good comparison by the way um with girl with the dragon tattoo. Cause I, I hadn't even thought about that, but you're exactly right
2: for you getting the messages. It must especially feel like that because you're like secondhand absorbing all these other traumatic stories.
3: Yeah. Um, and that's why I feel, um, and I understand how, you know, trauma works. I understand that it is hard to get those messages and I'm not trying to downplay like how it feels for me, but I also feel a little, I want to say silly, but kind of saying like, "Oh, like this stuff is so upsetting to me." Like I, you know, you are kind of absorbing that secondhand trauma, and like hearing that over and over and over again, it again, it shakes you up a little bit. You know, I'm thankful to not be in a situation like that, but in a, uh, you know, again, just knowing that you're a part of the sport, and you know, knowing like I've recommended jujitsu to to people, thankfully not often, but you know, one or two times it's happened that I've you know, encouraged, you know, a a female teammate or a female friend to keep training. And then something has happened later on down the line because like directly because of her involvement in jujitsu or MMA. And that's also a really yucky feeling. Um, And knowing that, you know, it it wasn't, I guess you could say my fault for encouraging her to keep training and that she happened to end up in this situation, you know, with a a predatory coach or, you know, a, a bad teammate. But, you know, that stuff occurs to me where just like, I, man, I know this stuff is so prevalent. You know, can I consciously encourage someone to to train knowing the potential for what can happen? And obviously the answer is like, yes, you know, that those situations are still not common, but it, it's just, it's alarming how much it does happen.
2: And you mentioned some of the pushback you've gotten. Didn't you say in a uh, tweet to me that after you wrote a certain article that you got kicked out of your gym?
3: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was, um, I forget the exact title, but you know, don't stop defending predators just because they're good at sports. Um, and cause you see that all the time and uh, yeah. So I wrote that article And a couple hours later, I got a message saying that I was no longer welcome at the gym. I need to find (laughs) somewhere else to train.
2: Was that a surprise to you or did you kind of sense that could happen?
3: I had a feeling. In fact, when I got the message, I just laughed um, because there was a lot of stuff that had happened at that gym, That it was just so many red flags. And there was something going on at that time with another member of the gym who was having a bad experience there that I was like, man. Like I got to stick up for her, you know. I have to say something because, like, she's getting screwed over. She's going to quit jujitsu because of some of the behavior that's going on. And so I was going to talk to the owner, and I was kind of prepared to either get yelled at or get the boot from that conversation. And so when that message came through, I was just like, "Of course!" Like, well, they're you know, that's my problem solved. <laughs> um, and so yeah, it's still a bummer. Um, like the the actual coach wasn't even the one to send me the message. Um, so he still has not spoken to me since then. I've reached out to him even just to say like, hey, thanks for everything. Um, you know, even knowing that it was his decision, you know, I just kind of wanted to keep the peace and say like, hey, you know, thanks for everything. Um, you know, I, I don't understand why this is happening, but I respect your decision. I wish you the best. Never got a reply. <laughs> uh so it was uh it was an interesting experience. Obviously it was for the best, but uh Yeah. And that article specifically wasn't mentioned, but, you know, when I was like, Hey, can I ask what brought this about? The person who replied did say like, Oh, your articles, your articles, like, you know, you brought so much to the gym, but your articles. I was like, okay.
2: (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. And you're in a difficult situation because you're a writer and you also train and you want to stay a writer and cover the sport and not get shut out. You have to I guess, sometimes swallow your pride and make peace with people that you probably don't want to.
3: Yeah, um, I'm I'm lucky that uh, Kit, who owns Jiu-Jitsu Times, is pretty cool when I'm like, hey, I don't want to interview this person or, you know, I know they're really good at Jiu-Jitsu, but like, I just don't feel comfortable giving them unnecessary media attention beyond like, hey, they, they're involved in this match or they won this match. Uh, but in the general sphere of things, there's definitely, you know, I have to, present myself a certain way and you know make sure I'm getting along with certain people. And some people I'm just like, no, like I I don't care how (laughs) famous or well connected you are. Like I I don't like you as a person. I think you're bad for the sport and I'm not going to give you that extra attention. Um but yeah in, in the general sphere of things, you know, like when that happened when I was kicked out, like you know, I was I was really worried about how that would affect my reputation in in the area, like in the local area. And thankfully, it really hasn't. Like, there are definitely a few gyms that were so closely connected that I'm like, uh, "Like, you probably got a different side of the story than what actually happened. Or I probably wasn't painted in the best light. And if you're going to take that without reaching out and asking me about it, like, that's on you, you know? And I'm not going to try to start this, you know, war by giving my side of the story and bad mouthing somebody. Um, but uh, yeah, thankfully, most people, I, I'm, I don't want to say lucky, but I'm, I'm grateful. I'm fortunate that my reputation as a person kind of speaks for itself and that I don't have to worry about those things.
2: Because there is a type of blacklisting that happens in Jiu Jitsu where you could be just unwelcome in a lot of gyms.
3: Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, and especially, you know, when you are very connected with a certain gym, um, you know, if, if a more well known person, you know, like if an upper belt gets booted from that gym, you know, there's usually a reason why if the uh, upper belt leaves a gym, there's a reason why they weren't just like, Oh, I'm not feeling it anymore. Like peace out. You (laughs) know, normally there's fallout that happened there. So yeah, I'm grateful that that didn't really happen in that scenario.
2: But with that said, would you say most of the feedback you've gotten has been more positive than negative?
3: Yeah, um, I actually think it's interesting that a lot of the really positive messages I've gotten about my writing are usually private messages. Um, and of course, <laughs> you know, the, the people who are more negative about it like to be the loudest. They like to post things in public or things like that. I've gotten a few, uh, really Uh, unhinged (laughs) messages from people who got really upset about things I've written like three years ago and just randomly decided to tell me about it um, at 3am their time. But for the most part, the uh, private messages I get are really, really nice and supportive. And um, I tell people all the time when they get into this type of writing, I'm like, screenshot the nice things that people say. Because like, there have been many, many times when I've gotten so much hate for articles. Like even uh the one that you reposted, um, the one that got me kicked out, uh, that one has gotten a lot of hate from people. Um, which is funny because <laughs> I think it's a I thought it was a pretty, you know, widely acceptable message, but I guess not. <laughs>
2: it's funny that you reporting on it, that you're the one getting the hate, not the sexual predator or the people defending the sexual predators.
3: Oh yeah, and that always happens. Um anytime I write something, you know, about you know, like a predator, you know, racism, whatever else you want to, You know, any other negativity in the sport. I get a lot of flack for like, you know, why aren't you reporting on the nice stuff about jujitsu? You know, like why do you always share such negative things? This is why people have such a bad impression of the sport. Cause you're giving these people attention. Like it's, it's just news, my dude, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like if you don't want it to be news, don't do the thing. Um, and yeah. So that's always interesting to me and it, it bums me out. Cause like, I obviously do not want to be reporting on this stuff. I would rather jujitsu be sunshine and rainbows, but yeah. unfortunately like people won't police within their own community, you know, uh, maybe police probably isn't a great word, but you know, people won't uh, moderate within their own community and kick out these bad people themselves. And so, you know, when this stuff happens, like, of course you got to cover it. Of course, you know, you want to make people aware of this stuff. Um, but yeah, it, the the nice messages that I get where people said, thank you so much for saying this, like this happened to me and nobody really talks about it. So I feel seen or, you know, things like that, that always, it makes my day and it makes it easier for me to continue with this despite all the slack.
2: Covering that stuff even for me, it's not fun. I know it's not fun for you. It's Mm -hmm. not something that you're like, oh, I feel so good covering about this terrible thing that I need to warn people about before they even read it. Yeah. (laughs) And you also know the negative feedback and consequences that'll come from it. You do it because you feel compelled to do it. I do it because I feel like I have to do it. I have to say something, not because I enjoy doing it. And oftentimes I'm trying to convince myself why I shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. It's always like me telling myself like, oh, don't do it, dude. You got so much flack the last time, but it's like they present it as if we're doing it because we like doing this, Mm -hmm. that it's somehow fun or enjoyable when it's doing it because you feel morally compelled to do it.
3: And that's, you know, what I've told people a lot and people have even come up to me in person, not so much recently, but previously, um, I've had people come up to me and be like, you know, why did you cover this? Like, this is not Uh, this doesn't paint our sport in a good light and it's like well you know at the same time (laughs) like it's you have to cover it you know especially like if it's news you know if it's a big story in the sport and it's not even for the sake of like oh more clicks you know bad story equal more clicks um but more yeah more just like it it happened it's a it's a big deal and i think people should know about it and i feel a lot of times i feel like sick Yeah, writing about some of this stuff, even when it's not about a specific story, when it's just about, you know, just accumulation of things that it kind of comes out and turns into an opinion piece It I don't enjoy it. It doesn't make me feel nice. But like you said, like, we're, you know, you want to make the sport better for people and you want to make people aware of what's going on. So it's got to be covered.
2: They're literally asking you to cover up the truth. They don't want news or the truth. They want propaganda, right? Mm-hmm. That's such a weird, bizarre feedback when you get that. It's like, what? <laughs> what do you want yeah. me to do? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to lie to you and pretend that things are this make-believe world? And often people who ask you to do that are the same people who always project to everything else that they're doing propaganda. It's the social justice warriors doing propaganda. It's like socialism doing propaganda. Yep. When these same kind of right-facing people are asking us to do propaganda, right? So.
3: Exactly. Like, oh, the mainstream media is evil. They're, you know, they're covering things up. They're lying to us. But like, you want me to lie to you? <laughs> you know, you think that's the best use of my time in my <laughs> my little apartment <laughs> with my little jujitsu writing job is that the best use of my time? <laughs>
2: Did you start covering MMA the same time you started writing about BJJ or did that happen later?
3: Um I think it was when I started taking on more more of an editor role at Jiu Jitsu Times. Um because these days I generally do three or four articles a day and there's not so much news in the jiu-jitsu world to to cover that amount. Um and so I've started doing more MMA as a result of that. And because people, I mean, MMA is generally more, I hate to say it, but like click worthy. Um, and so I did it more out of necessity. I I enjoy MMA much more passively than I enjoy jujitsu. Um, like I think I mentioned to you before, I don't follow it super, super closely. Um, unless there's a fighter that I have like an emotional attachment to, you know, I really want to see them win or I know them personally. So I follow their career. Um, But yeah, I I think that happened, I want to say like mm, a year and a half, two years into my jujitsu writing that I started covering a bit more of that.
2: Since you inhabit both worlds, BJJ and MMA, would you say they're different or would you say it's the same world?
3: That's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities in terms of the online culture. Um, Like a lot of... uh, jiu-jitsu people there's a lot of crossover in mma i think the main differences would be jiu-jitsu also has kind of that um i guess that more traditional culture entwined within it uh not so much i guess in the more nogi oriented sphere but the people who are big you know ibjjf purists um the, i feel like there's a bit more of that in the jiu-jitsu sphere but again i'm not so deeply entrenched in the mma world that i can confidently say that that doesn't exist in mma as well i'm sure it does. But, um, yeah, I, I, I see a lot more of um, the, the illusion that jiu-jitsu is all about, like, honor and respect and, mm. you know, all those things that you hear when you first start jiu-jitsu, what you assume it is as a martial art. I see a lot more people really clinging to that in jiu-jitsu where I think a lot of MMA and, you know, I guess more no-gi sub-only jiu-jitsu, um, there's a lot of people who are just big on, um, you know, the violence of it. And they, they enjoy that a bit more and they're a bit more okay with it being rough around the edges. So I think that's the biggest difference I've seen.
2: Which do you prefer covering?
3: Definitely jujitsu. Um, cause I understand it a bit more and I, yeah, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not as enthusiastic about the MMA side, ironically. (laughs) I know a lot of people are like, oh, there's more punching and kicking in MMA. You know, it's more action, more blood. And I'm just like, eh, it's it's a sport. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, like, I I just, I'm not as emotionally invested. And I like to watch things that I understand better and that I do and that I'm interested in doing. And um, I've kind of, I tried training for an MMA fight. I cracked a rib doing it. And I decided that I wasn't (laughs) so in love with it that uh, I wanted to Keep going with it to that extent. Whereas jujitsu, I you know I continuously love it, um, you know with a few hiccups here and there. So I think I definitely enjoy covering jujitsu a bit more.
2: So it sounds like a lot of it is also you know a lot of the players that you're covering. Whereas with MMA, they're more like abstract, just athletes that you have to cover.
3: Yeah, for sure. And um, I have gotten to interview a few uh, really cool MMA fighters. Um, I recently did a long interview with Kayla Harrison. Um, and that was really awesome. And uh, she was such a fun athlete to interview. And so moments like that, you know, I, I kind of get my little fangirl moment in where I'm like, oh, this is an athlete I actively wanted to cover. And I got to interview her. I got to cover her fight. And uh, that's always really exciting for me. So I do definitely have those moments of really enjoying covering MMA. Um, but I think in Jiu-Jitsu, I, I mean, you know how Jiu-Jitsu puts you in Closer proximity to a lot of these athletes, you know, it's like it's like covering basketball and being able to go play basketball with Michael Jordan, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I think in that that is one thing that is really cool about jujitsu, um, is that you can just go take a seminar from somebody, and you know, maybe uh, like I've gotten to interview uh, Michelle Nicolini through a seminar, and I know she does MMA now as well. Um, but yeah, I think just that proximity of getting to know so many. Jitsu athletes as people, to some extent, um, it has been really cool, and I think that's one of the things I enjoy most about covering jujitsu.
2: Yeah, that is a key distinction. Even though I kind of consider MMA a semi-pro sport because mm-hmm. you're not getting paid like basketball players or football players or even like the same level boxers. Yep. <laughs> but with MMA, there's a lot of people who will never have trained or sparred with, you know, any of these like top. MMA athletes, because even if you're at the same gym, they have a different class or a different training for them, whereas for pros only, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in Jiu Jitsu, there's no pros only. Maybe it's starting to form and it happens here or there, but for the most part, you know, if you are at a gym, you'll train with all the pros. You can train. Like, it's not weird to say, oh, I rolled with Marcelo Garcia. It's like, yeah, that's understandable in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Whereas if you say, you sparred with John Jones, that would be really unusual because you know, he's not gonna just spar with just anybody, right?
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com Southpawpod.
3: Yeah. And I guess uh, going back to your question about, you know, some of the differences between Jiu Jitsu and MMA, I do think that in itself is a big difference. Um, And even like when you see some of these uh, high level MMA guys, you know, they a lot a lot of the time they don't really want to roll with, um, you know, just your average Jiu Jitsu person. And that's completely fair. (laughs) You know, like this is how they feed their family. Like I would not want to be rolling with a white belt who just wanted to, you know, me from guard. Um, if <laughs> that's what I needed to do to make money, um, but yeah, I do. I do think, um, yeah, jujitsu. When you're just doing jujitsu, you're a lot more accessible, even at the highest level. You know, as as a training partner, as a rolling partner. So I always find that very interesting.
2: Yeah, and it comes with this pros and cons. I think. Because it is so exclusive in MMA, you're not going to get the same hero worship yeah. or cult of personality in an MMA gym because you're separated from that MMA fighter. So I think they have less access to be a potential predator. Whereas with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, it's the good and the bad. That proximity, that accessibility is cool that it's a little bit more flattening and you could train with whoever. But that cult worship will still exist. And so then they could be in a position where they might wield that power in an inappropriate way. And now they have access to victims as well. So I think we've seen both sides of that, the good aspect of that permeability and the bad aspect.
3: Yeah. And I think one aspect of that as well, um, that I've seen a lot of, and this is kind of, again, going back to your question of like, when did those scales start to fall off? Um, you know, I think when I was an earlier blue belt and I was getting to meet all these big name athletes and, you know, I was getting started in my jujitsu writing. So a lot of people wanted to talk to me because they wanted, you know, to make their names even bigger. Um, I started to see, or I, I guess I started to have like my own little fangirl moment of like, these are the top people in my sport. And like, they want to talk to me. What? Like they're being nice to me. And I think a lot of people, um, get that as well. And that's another downfall of that proximity. Um, you know, you go take a seminar from somebody and you know, they're nice to you and they take a photo with you. And so you're like, Oh, they must be a good person. And a lot of these people are like, you know, I took a seminar with such and such, and now I'm ready to fend them to the death online. You know, like even though they said that, you know, homeless people should die or whatever else. Um, and so I think that's another downfall: is you you meet somebody and you have enough proximity to them to be like, oh, I've rolled with them a couple times, but um, you know, they don't know that person as a person; they just know them as you know a brief training partner or as a you know somebody who taught a seminar, and then they think they know them backwards and forwards. Where, like, I think it just plays into that hero worship a bit that you mentioned.
2: Yeah, because if a white belt or just somebody your level, just a regular person who trains Brazilian jiu-jitsu as a hobby, if they're nice to you, it's not gonna stand out in your mind because Mm -hmm. they're supposed to be nice. Like normal people should be nice to each other. Whereas if somebody you elevate or have hero worship over, if they act even a little bit nice to you, you put up magnifying glass on it. You highlight it in your memory. So it stands out so much more. When it should be the same. Like people being nice to each other should be normal. But You treat that normal, just kind of social convention as being exceptional. And then you use that and put it under this magnifying glass to say, see, this is proof how great they are and how nice they are and everything you're saying about them is false. When it says more about our expectations and really about how strong that cult is, because we take what should be just normal and things we don't remember throughout the day. People are nice to us all day just normal throughout the day. And none of it stands out. So the fact that this stands out, what has already happened? We've already been snake charmed. We've already been like, uh, you know, mesmerized. And that's the problem is even before they're nice, the fact that we're already willing to take anything that they do that normal people do all the time as exceptional. And that's how we walk into the door of their seminar is already the problem. And that's what I meant earlier about the pedagogy. I think this kind of mm-hmm. cult worship doesn't just happen because they're good at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but the way Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is taught, especially like a lot of the way the hazing is done, like trains us to be more susceptible to falling into that kind of cult mindset.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and what I've noticed, especially um, looking back when I was newer in the sport and the way people would really hype up the the instructors who were giving seminars. um, And it it, like, it's so easy to be like, oh, this person was a world champion. And like, you know, you and I know that's really cool, but like, there are a lot of world champions, but you, you blow it up so much in people's minds, especially these newer practitioners that they go from like, oh, I'm going to learn a seminar from somebody who's really good at the sport, someone who I can really learn from. And it gets hyped up so much in their mind to like, I'm meeting, I'm meeting a celebrity, you know, um, and. To be fair, that person is kind of a celebrity in our sport, but like no one would recognize them walking down the street. You know what I mean? Unless they did jujitsu, um, and so I think you know that's another aspect of it. It gets hyped up so much, um, and these these people who are really just ordinary people who are you know a bit better at jiu-jitsu than the rest of us, um, they they get hyped up to like you said this like, this cult status, this celebrity status, and uh, yeah, it kind of builds this weird bubble around them that. It makes even newer practitioners, it makes them not want to criticize them when they come out and say stupid things or do stupid things. So it's interesting. We're in an interesting sport with interesting uh, dynamics.
2: Yeah, I think the fact that it is so obscure, because most people don't know what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, that obscurity makes people more defensive. It's like very much like gaming culture where a lot of people aren't familiar with anything about gaming they may game but they don't know about the culture or who some of these players are or maybe what some of these games are and so it makes the fan base even more protective and defensive because they know it is on the margins
3: yeah that's a really really good point that um i haven't even thought of but yeah you're exactly right and it makes me wonder you know like jujitsu and gaming um you know how many other i guess sports or cultures are there out there like i've thought about like do other sports have the same dynamics as jujitsu does or is it just the nature of what we do with you know the combat sports and how people hype it up to be like this is your only line of defense against somebody trying to attack you from the bushes you know <laughs> um, you know like do other sports have that same mentality or is is it exclusive or you know at least more prevalent in the martial arts world
2: Yeah, I think it can look the same, but I think let's say with major sports, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason why people are talking about it because it's major. So for them, it's just an actual like obsession or like they're that much of a fan, Mm -hmm. a super fan. Whereas with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or gaming or things like that, I think it's much more to do with insecurity because you're insecure in your position and secure of this art that it isn't mainstream, that people do ridicule it or make fun of it. You feel like you have to double down on this. And so- any slight against it then is perceived even worse. And any small thing that's good is perceived even greater.
3: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Um, and again, I think there's some, I guess, elitism because of how jiu-jitsu and other martial arts are hyped up for their self-defense purposes. Or Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, things like that. Like there is a sense of like, Oh, I'm not just playing baseball. You know, I'm not just learning how to hit a ball (laughs) with a bat. I'm learning, I'm learning how to kill people with my bare hands. And I definitely like hundred (laughs) percent kind of fell into that trap. Um, when I was a bit, I guess you could say younger in the sport, but, um, yeah, there is this weird sense of elitism where, you know, you, you kind of get picked up, you know, you go to a family gathering it's like, Oh, how's your little karate thing going? But, you know, I guess it's like, that, um, I don't want to say like nerd mentality, but just like, oh, but like, I have the super awesome skill that you don't even know about. Like, you know, there's this weird elitism that happens with it as well.
2: The obscurity means that I'm better than you. Yeah. Because it's not for everybody, but really we're pretending like we somehow like got selected to be in this special club when, they'll take the money of anybody. They want people to come in. They want everybody to be able to sign up. So there was no like initiation process. It's not like Naruto's like ninja society where it's only for the special chosen one. (laughs) It only ends up the small group because it's not that popular. Not because there was some gate that kept normal humans from trying it. So I think, again, it's just all this rationalization and justification to justify that you're doing this obscure sport that isn't for everybody that a lot of people don't find interesting.
3: And I'm sure a lot of it comes from the fact that uh, you know, jujitsu attracts a lot of people who weren't necessarily super athletic their whole lives. I wasn't, you know, like I was bullied so bad in track that I quit and then I found jujitsu. And so, yeah, I think there also comes that rush of being like, oh, uh, nobody ever said I was going to be good at a sport, but you know, Now I'm good at pajama wrestling. And, um, you know, so, yeah, it's just it's very interesting to me to see the type of people that come in, Um, sometimes interesting in a bad way and sometimes in a good way.
2: A lot of lone wolves. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's why, like, the wolf imagery is so popular in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I think, because it's like people who specifically hated working with other people and hated team sports. And maybe that comes from being bullied or not. And so then... Because that becomes a funnel for so many of them, they also get to create and influence the culture and also have that chip on their shoulder where it's like, I'll show you, you don't even know. Now I can kill you. I can kick your ass, (laughs) Mr. Bully that bullied me in junior high or high school.
3: Yeah. And that's always so interesting to me because there's a lot of people that come in and they use that for good, you know, like a lot of people like to say, go jujitsu, you know, will will make you into a better person. And like, I don't think that's true at all. You know, like if you are if you have that ugly stuff, you know, within you beneath the surface, jujitsu is going to bring that out. You know, if you were a bully all along, then that's just going to come out, whether or not you realize you were bully. You know, maybe you were bullied, but now you have that you have that anger inside you, and now you have the physical abilities behind it to bully other people. Like that's going to come out in jujitsu. But if you were if you had a negative or a positive experience earlier in life. And you now have jujitsu and you use it as you know, something to empower other people and to use it as a tool to bring out the best in other people. Like, that's just as possible. But there's a lot of people who think that it's making them a better person. and it's all, all it's really doing is turning them into who they would have been if they you know, knew how to enact violence upon other people a bit earlier in life.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. It's very interesting to hear women describe Brazilian jujitsu versus men. It almost sounds like they're describing two different things, right?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think it speaks more to what they come in with than what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is for them. So maybe for men, it's like this reinforcing of some of their more toxic traits, whereas maybe for women, it's a way to heal or liberate themselves or empower themselves, right? So I think it's something where the two groups have been speaking past each other. Maybe women are more aware that that's how men talk about it, but men are more oblivious that women talk about it differently because it means different things, I think, in general. This doesn't mean everybody, but broadly.
3: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I, I do feel like the, I don't want to say the bullying, but there there is definitely Negativity and elitism and superiority that comes in um, to the women's jujitsu culture as well. It just manifests a bit differently. Like, um, I've seen a lot of, I guess you could say, mean girl culture in jujitsu. Like, you know, obviously, um, you know, at this point in my journey, I, you know, I want it to be for everybody. I want to bring women in, but there was definitely a time, probably like early Blue Belt, when I was the highest ranked woman in my gym. Um, and I don't think I was ever mean, but I definitely had that. Um, I guess you could say like an instinct somewhere in me like a little ugly voice that was just like you've worked so hard to get here like you're not gonna just let any any girl come into the gym and <laughs> think that she can you know flirt with the boys and you know earn the same respect like it was very like it, it was just that culture that's ingrained in a lot of women from you know elementary school you know from what you see in the media just that you know gatekeeping exclusionary type of thing and you see that a lot even now like I've met um, female black belts, um, that I was just like, what are you doing? Like, why, why aren't you happy with the fact that there are some women in your class who are like a bit more giggly or having fun that aren't taking this as something that like, Oh, like you have to be respected by the men, you know, like they're just kind of doing their own thing and enjoying the sport in the way that they want to. Um, or, you know, who cares if this woman's walking in and, you know, maybe she's got fake nails for the time being. You know, those will have to come off if she continues. But, you know, like if she's a bit more, you know, girly and feminine presenting than other women in the gym. Like it there's just a lot of weird gatekeeping there. And it's it it's similar. I think the root of it is similar to the kind of bullyish, um, you know, hyper masculine stuff that happens in men's jujitsu culture. It just manifests very differently.
2: And it's still putting men at the top.
3: Oh yeah, exactly.
2: So it's still an extension of that misogyny.
3: 100%. It's, you know, it's either trying to fit in with the men or, um, you know, saying, oh, like I, you know, you have to make the men think of you a certain way. Um, You're exactly right. Like it's all rooted in that misogyny.
2: Yeah. Because they're still the barometer.
3: Exactly. Very good point.
2: So let's talk about UFC 263, which is headlined by the middleweight title fight between champion Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori. This is actually a rematch where Adesanya won the first fight by close split decision. And there's actually a lot of rematches in this card. So what are your thoughts about Marvin Vittori, Israel Adesanya, and this fight?
3: I really enjoy Izzy as a personality and as a fighter. Um, I'm really excited for it. Um, And I, I think there's an interesting... I don't know if you want to say contrast, but Vittori is a, you know, jujitsu brown belt. Um, he's got more definitely more submissions uh, on his record than Izzy does. And I think it would be interesting to see, you know, I think Izzy's been hyped up a lot now that he's gotten his purple belt in jiu-jitsu. I don't think he will actively want to go to the ground, but I would I would actually like to see what he could do from the ground. I don't think it's gonna go there, but um I I would really like to see that happen personally.
2: Yeah, Adesanya has had problems with Salplaz in the past, not only in his first fight with Vittori, but also with Kelvin Gastelum. That'll be interesting this time around if he's able to adjust to that because it seemed like he had a hard time the first time around. And it's something actually going back to jujitsu. people don't think about. People think that jujitsu is an ambidextrous art because we drill everything both sides, but actually people do have preferences. So sometimes I'll roll with somebody and I'll say, are you left-handed? And they'll be like, you're the first person who ever asked me that. And it's like, because <laughs> I'm looking for it because if they're left-handed, they'll attack in directions that you're not as used to. They can go both ways. Cause if you're high level, just like in high level wrestling, you can attack from both sides, but you could still tell a preference.
3: Oh yeah. hundred percent. And that's why I'm always, uh, you know, I, again, I'm not a big striker, but knowing how hard it is to, to be ambidextrous in jujitsu as, as somebody who's not ambidextrous from the start. Um, seeing people who can really switch up their stance in MMA just blows my mind. <laughs> you know, like I struggle enough with left and right, you know, when I'm just doing pad work and to see how people can switch it up. And that's such a, a cool skill to have. But um, also just to get used to somebody, used to fighting someone who's southpaw when you yourself are, you know, orthodox, I think is, is a crazy skill on its own.
2: Vittori also has a style where he doesn't bite on feints because he's constantly trying to lead and attack. And I think that's less about his strategy, but more about his personality. Because everything I read and see of this guy, you know, especially in interviews, he just seems like he has a bad temper. <laughs> so instead of like, oh, this is a possible strike, I should cower or I should back up. He doesn't care and he's just going to keep coming forward and even like listening to some of his teammates talk about him, they just say that's just how he is as a person. He'll just kind of rush in and come forward without being intimidated.
3: Yeah, how do you think that's going to go against Israel Adesanya?
2: I noticed that um against Jan Blahovic that Jan did bite on the feints, but instead of biting and like backing up or whatever, once Jan realized, oh, this isn't really a strike, I'm just going to come forward. And that worked really well against Adesanya. And I think Marvin Vittori, if he doesn't even have that hesitation that Jan Blahovic had, I think he'll do even better. But with that said, Adesanya, is, even without the feints, he's such an accurate striker. It might not matter.
3: Yeah.
2: Like against the uh, Paula Costa, it didn't matter. As Paula Costa was coming in, he just lit him up. So. Even if you get past the feints, you still have to deal with the accuracy of his striking.
3: Yeah, his striking is terrifying.
2: <laughs> In re-watching the fight, I noticed uh, if you completely ignore Daniel Cormier's commentary, <laughs> the fight is a lot closer, especially than I remembered.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I watched it again without the sound, especially the first round. And I'm like, wow, that's a really close round. But when I listened to it, especially from Daniel Cormier's commentary, I thought like Adesanya had clearly won and dominated, but it was not like that. And so when it went to a split decision, it made a lot more sense, even if they're not a striker, but a lot of like fighters to martial artists. And I think you could relate to this. There's an aesthetics to martial arts, whether it's striking or grappling. So we have a soft spot. We have a bias for pretty technique. Yeah. So whether the technique lands or not we remember the pretty ones more than the ones sometimes that land, but don't look as pretty. And actually Marvin Vittori is a very good striker, but it doesn't look nearly as crisp or just as elegant, let's say, because I think Israel Adesanya just being a longer person, it almost looks like ballet. Just everything looks longer and more like bird-like, right? Like it just has this grace to it yeah, because of that. And the way he uses his length, whereas uh, Marvin is a little bit more like, a uh, stout and it looks a little bit more compact the way he moves right so if you watch that first round without the commentary and just count the strikes they both hit each other about the same number of times but Israel Adesanya striking just stands out more just because you know when you train martial arts you just like those techniques more you know i sometimes wonder about that with the uh, just how things are scored in general like when you watch a even a brazilian jiu-jitsu match and it goes to a ref's decision and you're like how did this person win you always think the ref is wrong and maybe sometimes there is like bias with the refs especially because they're part of the same association or whatever it is mm-hmm. but also what are we looking at you know like sometimes i think my teammate won but did i think that just because they're my teammate or maybe it's not even a teammate it's somebody i watch on youtube and i really like their style yeah so am I judging them just for style points? Like one of those things that you score just on aesthetics, like gymnastics, like you get a 10 from my card for how pretty it look, right? Yeah. The fighting isn't about that. It's about effectiveness. So I think also with Adesanya, he draws in all of us, whether you're more into grappling or more into striking, draws this bias that we have where we just like pretty martial arts. And so we always think he's winning. Like with Blahovich, Blahovich was outlanding him, but a lot of people... Didn't know that because we were just so mesmerized by Adesanya's movements.
3: Yeah, and I, I think especially um for this fight, not only with the the specific styles, you know, where vittori does appear a bit more. I guess you could say scrappy, you know, where he's always pushing forward. His movements look a lot. You know, he's not. He doesn't have that lankiness that Adesanya does. um And like you said, is more precise. You know, he he looks just majestic. He's like this giant athletic swan um but i think people also are like i know i'm guilty of this like i'm drawn to izzy just because of you know like his his personality what he projects as a fighter you know he's just he's fun to follow he's fun to watch um and you know even though vittori does have that more like i guess you could say aggressive personality that he kind of projects in interviews and things like that i think there is definitely I think a lot of people are going into this fight with bias towards Izzy. Just, you know, just everything about him. He's, he's, he looks like an action hero, you know, he, he fights like an action hero. And I think a lot of people are really, really uh, biased towards him because of that, which may definitely come out.
2: When we score in our own minds, watching a fight, I think that personality they project, if we like it, we put that into our calculus of scoring. Right. Mm -hmm. And also they're, body language. Mm -hmm. Adesanya is very good at always looking like he's winning and that he believes is winning the round, right? Yeah. And so we start getting convinced that he was winning the round as well. I think even in the first Vittori fight, that became a factor. So let's say somehow Vittori does win. There's going to be a lot of upset people out there because if he doesn't finish, people will remember Adesanya as winning.
3: Yeah, that's a very good point.
2: Next, we have the flyaway title fight between champion Davis and Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. Another rematch. The first one was one of the rare UFC draws, but one judge did give it to Figueroa because you could say it was a draw or you could say Figueredo won, but it would be, I think, harder to say Brandon Moreno won. But in the first fight, The areas that he had the most success in, I think, was just cardio and volume, but also on the ground. Watching Moreno's jiu-jitsu doesn't look like MMA jiu-jitsu. It looks like watching a guy who's really high-level jiu-jitsu. You know, like MMA grappling has this kind of bread and butter style. It's like one or two moves, and then you go for a submission. It's kind of like double legs in MMA, where it's just a blast double, where high-level wrestlers come in, and they don't just do a blast double. They're chaining stuff together. Yeah, And so- Even like some of the good grapplers for MMA, they're not chaining stuff. Whereas Moreno, he looks like a jiu jitsu guy. He looks like somebody who could have been winning tournaments and maybe he did.
3: Yeah, that was um, something that actually has surprised me about him. Um, It was just that, just how his jiu jitsu looks so carefully planned. You know, when you talk about thinking multiple steps ahead in jiu jitsu, and I imagine that is so much harder in MMA when somebody's trying to punch you in the face, you know, like, um, like you said, that the style is just so different. And I think a lot of people, when they get to the ground, they're just thinking like, you know, next step, survive. Okay, I've survived. Now submission or whatever else. Um, and it seems like he already has his game plan mapped out um, once the fight goes to the ground, which I think makes him such an interesting fighter, um, not just from a jiu-jitsu perspective, but just in general. Because like you said, we don't see that a lot. Um, and it, it always just it looks so clean. You know, <laughs> like it looks like... He just has such a plan that it just flows together so nicely when he's on the ground.
2: Figueredo is much more of a club and sub guy where he kind of clubs you and rocks you and then looks for a submission. You know, I think there's a difference between being a submission artist, like somebody who's really good at the finishes versus just being a good grappler. I know a lot of jujitsu people, especially like in the lower belts, who are really good at certain submissions, like really good at triangles or arm bars, but They're not really good at recovering guard, passing guard, sweeping, any of the other stuff. They're just a submission specialist. And I think Davis Figueroa has more of that style of just looking for a finish rather than being able to do all the other aspects of grappling at the same high level. Yeah. So you cover the sport of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so you know firsthand how much the high level sport has been evolving as far as like the way the grappling game looks especially no gi mm-hmm. and the moves that are being done and like the grappling system itself like the guard system the leg lock system is all changed so sport jiu-jitsu gi or no gi today looks very very different than it looked five years ago how much of that are we seeing filtered into mma
3: no that's a good point and um i definitely think that a lot of what we're seeing more in sport jiu-jitsu, especially when it comes to things like leg locks, um, it seems like a lot of MMA fighters are a lot less hesitant to go for those now. Um, especially when you look at, you know, one championship, obviously we see people like, you know, Gary Tonin, um, coming into that promotion and, um, using their jitsu skills and their submission skills, um, in that sphere. But I think we're seeing more leg locks. I, I've been seeing a lot more, um, bendy stuff, like you know rubber guard <laughs> um in MMA. um so yeah, I think you know, with gyms like tenth planet, you know, there's a lot of um fighters who come from tenth planet gyms now, um and seeing how i I guess that you know more sport jujitsu aspect is coming into it there i I do feel like the way it's evolved is. Not that we're seeing less of more traditional grappling and, you know, those fundamental submissions, you know, triangles, arm bars, all that stuff. But I think we're also seeing a lot of fighters who are capitalizing on the fact that their opponents don't understand things like leg locks or, you know, like I said, rubber guard, things like that. Um, And so I think they're being a bit more creative with their jujitsu, which is interesting. They're not just focusing on their bread and butter and they're not afraid to go for, you know, we've seen a few buggy chokes now. Um, yeah, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, I I just think the creativity and the grappling side of MMA has been upped in the past few years.
2: Can you explain what the buggy choke is for people who don't know what that is?
3: Oh man, not very well, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, but it is basically a, a what the heck type of choke. Um, it happens basically from the bottom um and the other person's on top and they usually think they're about to to pass the guard but the uh the person on the bottom kind of grabs their own leg and it, it, it looks very strange it doesn't look like it should work
2: but they're not in a guard position right it looks like more like struggling to maintain a guard or recover a guard or a desperation move <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it looks like they're like that. Looks how like how I look when I'm trying to you know get out of side control and like desperately get you know half guard or full guard or something. Like it looks like a transition to um I guess a different guard almost. Like it looks like they are struggling and then all of a sudden you're getting choked. So I've had it done to me a few times and uh, I've not yet been able to do it on anybody. But
2: (laughs) the one thing I do think that people in the past were better at was recovering guard and preventing themselves from getting mounted or escaping the mount. Whereas now people are really good at, in general, at framing and getting up and creating scrambles. But nowadays, if you mount somebody, and even if you're not like a really good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu person, you got to mount in MMA and it's like done. Yeah. Whereas in the past, people didn't even like mount because people would escape so easily. They usually held side control or half guard because, yeah. because everybody on their first day of MMA training, even though they want to do MMA, everybody's learning hip escapes and shrimping and recovering the guard. So I think the emphasis on getting up has made people in MMA today worse at those basics that people used to be good at are there still people who are using half guard as much to base their whole game around or not as much now?
3: Uh, yeah. I don't think you see it as much um, in a lot of the more, I guess, younger athletes or the up and coming athletes. Um, I think it's definitely, you see it more in um, the more old school, the more, you know, I guess the veterans of the sport. Um, it seemed like there was like an age of half guard.
2: I think also because the athletes today, even in sports, you just you are Like much better trained, like not better trained in jiu-jitsu, but much better trained as athletes. So they're much better conditioned. They're doing things outside of just training Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So they're just quicker, more athletic, and also better cardio. Half guard was popular because you could just rest. You don't even need to be in that good of a shape or have excellent cardio. You could just use half guard to just slow it down and kind of have them tire themselves out and then just sweep them at the end, or sweep them and get on top, cook him from half guard top for a bit, and then pass. But nowadays, I think people factor in that they have really good cardio. And so because of that, then they don't need moves like that as much anymore. They can just go, go, go.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think any of that comes from a desire to, I guess, like make the fight more exciting? Like, Do you think people realize that if they stay in half guard too long, then they might you know, get scored against or anything like that.
2: I think, like you said, for younger people coming in, Mm -hmm. because they're much more familiar with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and they're starting younger than before, I think people who started in their 20s needed half guard, right? A lot of the Mm -hmm. champions from the past, even the ones from Brazil, they started in their 20s. Damian Maia actually started, I think, in his 20s as well. So they needed stuff like that. And Also, they weren't training two-a-days back then. You could be world champion training you know, once a day, maybe even four times a week. When I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it was like two-a-days was like, what are you, a professional athlete? You're not getting paid for this. Why would you do that? It was just yeah. absurd, right? When you have younger people getting into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, then younger people are going to change the sport. Younger people are going to be interested in different things than older people. And so younger people aren't going to be as interested in just that old man style of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as they call it, right? Old man Jiu-Jitsu. Mm-hmm. They're much more interested in making it like a video game, Yeah, making it fast-paced, making it more playful. And also, I think for them, aesthetics are much more important. They also want to have a game that's very cool. You know, just like, you know, when you started seeing 16-year-olds in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is when the gi started getting more expensive and cooler looking. Yeah. because you know, when everybody was 25 and above in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it didn't matter. Nobody cared about how nice or cool looking the geese were. Whereas when you had 16-year-olds now taking over the sport, you needed to cater to them. And so I think in that same way, half guard or these kind of more static style Jiu-Jitsu games that you saw in the past, those were made by older people for older people. And so I think younger people are inventing their own game and what they like and that aesthetics is also more important for them.
3: Yeah. I've seen it again. I haven't been in jiu-jitsu for terribly long, you know, it's been under 10 years, but even since then, you know, I've seen it evolve so much, um, you know, both like within gyms and outside of it, you know, seeing what's popular and, um, you know, the, the difference in styles between somebody who's doing it, who's been doing it for 15 years versus, you know, 10 years versus even five years, you know, like the the stuff that some of these blue and purple belts are coming up with. I'm like, what the heck? Like why didn't I learn that at the time? Um, so yeah, it, it's very interesting to me how quickly grappling tends to evolve and all the differences that you can see.
2: One aspect of MMA grappling that's been changing that I don't know has followed over to Sport Jiu Jitsu is a lot of times even though the back is exposed, they won't take the back initially. They're still going to constantly break them down onto their side or onto their back over and over and over, you know, doing more leg rides and wrist rides until they're exhausted and not only exhausted, but mentally wilted. And then you'll see somebody like Habib jump on their back and choke them out. Have you seen any of that transition over to sports jiu-jitsu where it's not all about all paths have to immediately go to the back?
3: Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it. Um. I I, I do see, I think, a lot more opportunities to take the back that are kind of just ignored. Um, Whereas before, like you said, I think it was just instant. Like, if you can see the back, you can take the back. Go take it. Um, But yeah, I think now people... I I see a lot more people almost forcing people's... Like, their opponents back to the mat so they can spend more time in side control or transition to mount. Um, And yeah, break them down a bit or, you know, hunt for submissions... From the top instead of the back like you don't see or i haven't at least seen uh nearly as many chokes from the back when the opportunity has definitely been there um but yeah until you mentioned that i haven't given a lot of thought about it it's more just been like why wouldn't you do that the back was right there i i almost wonder how much of that because i know there are a lot of gyms um that specifically drill EBI rules you know because there are a lot of tournaments out there you know, even local tournaments that will use EVI overtime and how, you know, you can start in the back. And I think a lot of people are training for like very, very hard to as soon as somebody gets your back, you know, how do you get your shoulders to the mat? How do you get out of that? And so I wonder how much of that is, you know, knowing that if you take the back, then, you know, people are much better, I think, at getting out of that position than they were in previous years. Cause I know even since I've started, the focus on escaping back control has skyrocketed and the techniques being taught to do that um like i feel like there's a lot more um and again just a lot more creativity in how to escape that position so like i'm not saying that has everything to do with it but i'm just curious as to how much of that has just come from realizing that you know people are better at escaping those positions now
2: mm. yeah that's the thing that people don't realize when they create tournament rules is it creates the conditions In which people will train under, and then that creates the type of jiu-jitsu for that era or going forward, right? Yeah, The IBJJF rules determine the game of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and now Eddie Bravo's rules to try to smash IBJJF rules is actually now just becoming the new condition that people are learning how to train under, and it's also dictating how people train. Because if you're already going to get the back anyway in overtime, then why do you even need to learn how to get the back, right? it's more about once you have it learning how to finish and once somebody has your back how to get out
3: yeah like there there are definitely people who will um wait like that is their game plan is to wait for overtime just so that they can have easier access to those positions and finish from there um which is another i think interesting i don't know if it's for better or for worse but it's an it's certainly an interesting way that jujitsu has developed over the past few years i think
2: Well, they just inadvertently created the same problems that soccer has. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu would know that if so many of them didn't pride themselves in never watching any other sports. Mm -hmm. Because if they watched other sports, they would know some of the hurdles that they've had to face and then be able to avoid those pitfalls. But the way soccer is and that soccer people have complained about is teams have learned to just drag it out and take it to overtime where it's zero zero, Mm -hmm. and then just win on the shootout. Yeah actually it's another good reminder that you shouldn't just only watch your sport because then you will make the same mistakes other sports make.
3: Yeah. That's a really good point. I've actually, um, I've recently gotten into watching volleyball. Um, I blame Haiky for that. Um, Oh
2: my God. I love that show. (laughs) I am
3: obsessed. I'm wearing, um, a Haiky jumper right now, actually. Um, yeah, actually obsessed, but yeah, it, uh, it actually got me into volleyball and, um, I have, uh, uh, friend on Twitter, actually, um, who we both do jujitsu, but we've both gotten really into volleyball because of the anime. Um, and yeah, I've never really been a fan of watching other sports, but just, it's been interesting. Like we, um, you know, comparing, like we're uh, such nerds, but we've been comparing the characters in that show and being like, how would that style translate to jujitsu? Um, you know, like how would, you know, the setter, <laughs> like what would their game look like in jiu-jitsu and uh vice versa as well, like saying how would you know a jiu-jitsu athlete go in volleyball and things like that. Um and so yeah, I think it's interesting, because um, that's not something I've done before, but analyzing other sports from a lens of MMA or jujitsu and seeing what you could pick up from that.
2: I mean, those positions that you named only became positions because of the rules of volleyball. Mm-hmm. So in the same way then Brazilian jujitsu, the styles of play that you have, the games that people have is all dictated by the rules.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's fascinating to me. And just, I think, you know, jiu people and MMA people and I've fallen into that trap where it's just like, Oh, I, I do this sport. So I'm only going to watch this sport. Um, But yeah, like opening your mind up to other sports, I think can, can be beneficial, you know, and like you, like you said, seeing how the rules affect different positions and how they affect your style of play as well has been very interesting.
2: Yeah. So those EBI rules and trying to make it more exciting, might also in some ways inadvertently create a stalling style of game and everybody's looking to get to the shootout.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um and I, I think we've seen that in uh submission underground. It's been criticized recently for that. Um, you know, where where the athletes were just waiting for overtime to capitalize on that. Um but yeah, it's a double edged sword. <laughs> we get more jujitsu, but then sometimes people just wait for overtime.
2: Yeah. I mean, people ultimately just want to win, right? So if your main thing is to win, then you have to think about what are the avenues you're leaving open for winning. I think a lot of times like people don't test these ideas out because I think, like I said, they're not watching other sports and a lot of these ideas might have been tested out in other sports. So Mm -hmm. it goes back to the weakness and the problems of being lone wolves is they didn't like any of those team sports. Uh, Their whole thing is like, I'm just about jujitsu. Going back to that elitism. So then they're constantly reinventing the wheels that have been invented by other sports and then making the same mistakes those other sports have made needlessly, even though they've solved it. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is still trying to figure it out for the first time because they don't want to learn from anybody else. Yeah. Going back to our conversation about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's interesting that there's going to be a light heavyweight fight between Paul Craig and Jamal Hill because it's, it's a classic striker versus grappler match. And Paul Craig is like a submission specialist for light heavyweight Mm -hmm. only because light heavyweight is really bad at submissions, Uh which kind of makes me wonder, somebody like John Jones, can you consider him the greatest of all time if he's in a division where people can still do that kind of (laughs) jiu-jitsu and still win a lot of fights? It's not a very good division.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. I guess you don't really see people grappling at the the level that he is at that um Paul Craig is.
2: Like a lot of his fights he was getting beat up and then he fell and then they got into his guard and then got submitted by nothing even like interesting mm-hmm. shows you where <laughs> MMA grappling is at depending on the division. Like that could never happen in any of the lighter divisions.
3: Yeah. Um and I think yeah, Paul's just like really good at um like we're talking about like the bread and butter fundamental Judits he's not doing anything special. You know, he's just he's good at what he does he knows what he's good at <laughs> you know like he he knows how to do submissions from guard um and yeah like you said that division just isn't very strong with with grappling you see a lot of strikers um but yeah it, it's funny how you know stuff that you, you think like oh it's just you know it's just guard and then triangle you know yeah. th- that's that's nothing special <laughs> that's nothing creative that's not necessarily like ultra mega highlight real stuff but it's working because these guys don't see a triangle coming or don't know how to escape it or you know, don't know like, oh, I'm in someone's garden. It's good. What do I do from here?
2: That's why in a lot of ways, the old school versus new school jujitsu argument is stupid mm-hmm. because people training now are just so much better mm-hmm. in general than people of the past. Not in every aspect. I gave the example about my own escape or different things like that. In general, they are because they're used to submitting and beating people who know how to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, whereas people of the past, even like when I started in the 90s, so much of how good you were was a lot about being able to submit people who don't know anything about Mm Jiu-Jitsu. I was often like grappling a (laughs) karate guy, you know, or like a Kung Fu guy who walked in the door. You didn't have higher belts. so. Being able to submit somebody who can't recognize an armbar or a triangle coming and feeling good about yourself about that is a lot different than somebody who knows it's coming and still able to catch it on them anyway. And so that is a generational difference. So people who got their black belt by mostly submitting people who didn't recognize those things is not nearly as impressive as people who are able to submit people and be people who've been training since they were 15.
3: Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, And I think we are... You know, obviously now that jujitsu is becoming a bit more popular, we're seeing uh, more jujitsu guys breaking into MMA or, you know, MMA guys focusing more on jujitsu. You know, you do get a lot of matches where, or fights rather, um, where I I guess um, I've been seeing more of people anticipating some jujitsu moves before they happen, Um, you know, where they're thinking a few steps ahead. But yeah, like, uh, like you were saying, in some divisions, like that that just doesn't exist as much. but yeah. And it's interesting how, um, some, some people's jujitsu is just so good that like you don't see, I mean, we see that on the, the mats all the time, but you definitely see that in MMA as well, where, you know, somebody thinks they have good fundamental jujitsu, but the other guy, I mean, the other guys is better. Like it's as simple as that.
2: Yeah. I think especially in the past, you didn't really need to think that many steps ahead. Yeah. It wasn't like that. <laughs> it was more about like toughness and like really trying to, force that arm bar or just being able to take it, you know, even though they saw it coming Mm -hmm. a lot of muscling, a lot of strength Mm -hmm. or you cooked them. It wasn't like thinking 12 moves ahead. Mm -hmm. I think that's more of a thing that's happening now.
3: Yeah. hundred percent.
2: All right. This was fun, Avery. Yeah, Thank you for coming on the show and chatting with us.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Sam. Like I said, it's a huge honor. I'm a big fan.
2: Where can people find you and your work?
3: Um, Best place to find it now is just on the Jiu Jitsu Times website. you can follow us on Facebook. Uh, we have an Instagram account. And uh, yeah, if you just go to the website, you'll find a lot of my stuff there. If you want to follow me, it's just at BJJ Avery. Um, my Twitter is mostly just incoherent ramblings, um, sometimes <laughs> about jiu-jitsu, sometimes about anime, sometimes about whatever dumb thought decides to rattle around in my skull. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm always happy to chat with people about jiu or anything else.
1: Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes. Or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time. Goodbye. South Pauls hidden with the left. South Pauls. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.